At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 722nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who appreciates the variety of pollinators that visit our gardens. We're talking with Phyllis Stiles about the Bee City USA program. Phyllis is founder and director emerita of Bee City USA, which began in Asheville, North Carolina in 2012. The North American Pollinator Protection Campaign named her Pollinator Advocate of the Year in the United States in 2015. That same year, the sister program, Bee Campus USA, launched. To date, more than 320 cities and campuses in 45 states have joined the Bee City and Bee Campus USA networks. Phyllis has made well over 100 presentations and published countless newspaper and magazine articles about pollinator conservation across the nation. She spent her career at universities and nonprofit organizations serving communities from West Africa to the Mississippi Delta in fields ranging from natural resource and farmland protection to fundraising. Welcome to the show today, Phyllis. Are you ready to rock pollinators? Already buzzed, Greg. Thank you oh. for having me. <laughs> I love that. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. I grew up in South Carolina and came to college in Western North Carolina <clears throat> to our Blue Ridge Mountains state. So I have been here ever since and worked in a variety of fields, but doing international development, community leadership, fundraising for universities, working with various nonprofits, land protection, work with the land trust community in Western North Carolina. So a wide variety of things. But um, I, my husband, being the kind of person he is, heard about colony collapse disorder back in 2007, and he asked me to keep bees. And so that wow. was the beginning of my journey. Nice. And why did you create, actually, what is Bee City USA and why did you create it? It's a certification program for cities. And it requires the city council to vote on a resolution that's filled with all the Bee City USA commitments. I created Bee City USA because after being a beekeeper for just a few years, I learned about the decline of honeybees and higher honeybees came from Europe in the 1600s. We didn't have any honeybees in the Americas until the colonists brought them here. We've got tons of other pollinators that were pollinating our plants very well before the European honeybees came. 
The gift of the honeybees is that we as people can get up close and personal with them, Mm. which is a little harder to do with our solitary bees that don't live in colonies like honeybees. Our only eusocial bees, that's what we call them, EU social bees in the United States are bumblebees. They have a queen, they have worker bees, and the worker bees help the queen maintain the colony. But the colonies are way smaller than a honeybee colony. There are only a few hundred bees in a bumblebee colony, and the colony doesn't survive over the winter like honeybees do. In comparisons between our eusocial bees that we have here, but being among the honeybees and among the beekeeping community for several years, I was so intrigued by this whole world of plant and pollinator ecology, I was just blown away. I'd never done anything like that before. And uh, I just couldn't get enough. I became a sponge learning all I could. And the next thing you knew, I was at a an international pollinator conference with scientists from around the world saying more paragraphs than I ever want to see again in my lifetime. But all that to say, the honeybee is my gateway pollinator and I was hooked. And so I found myself suddenly giving presentations like this. Oh, nice. Doing things I never dreamt I would have done. But I just decided after going to beekeeping club meeting monthly, where we had speakers every month and going Uh to beekeeping conferences, that I couldn't stand by anymore. All I heard was how dire the situation was. And I just felt like maybe there was something I could do. And I got this idea for Bee City USA. We certify cities that are willing to make commitments to their communities for pollinators. And that involves planting more native plants, using fewer pesticides, if any, providing nest sites, doing outreach activities, installing signage, coming up with an integrated pest management plan, integrating your pest management plan and your native plant list into your master planning documents for your city. And then reporting annually about what you did the previous year. Wow. You have years and years of evidence of what that community has been doing to increase the the diversity and numbers of pollinators in their community. Wow. How epic is that? And (laughs) so you're what, 10 years old? Yeah, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. And along the way, magic happened on something with interacting one of these 320 organizations. What was that moment when you were interacting with somebody or talking with somebody and it occurred to you like, oh my gosh, wow, this is the reason that I do what I do. (laughs) I have hundreds of those, but I tell you a kind of just little capsule of what this whole world of pollinator conservation is like for me and so many others. I am not alone. And that's what's been so exciting about this adventure I've been on. A friend in the monarchy, we call it. She's a very (laughs) active proponent of monarch butterflies. So she brought me a chrysalis and it was taped up to the lid of a jar. And she said, 
just watch it. And when it starts to turn colors, it's about time for it to eclose, which is to come out of its chrysalis as a butterfly. And so it sat there on my kitchen table and I watched it. And we had an invitation to go up north of here two hours to visit friends for Labor Day in September. And there was my monarch in the jar, so I couldn't leave it. So I took it with me to visit my friends and it sat there in their kitchen and we would check on it every so often to see if it was changing colors. And lo and behold, it started changing colors. And I don't know how many hours I sat there and just watched that monarch transform. Wow. So I saw it fall out of its chrysalis, drop out of its chrysalis. I saw its two pieces of its tongue zipper together. I saw its wings dry out. I saw it start to flap its wings in the little jar. And then I was faced with, okay, now I have a fully adult monarch. What am I going to do with this monarch? Uh-huh. Uh, and I looked around and there wasn't much blooming nearby. And so I said to my husband, let's get on the road and let's try to find a good place to release this monarch because it has to get down to Mexico by day of the dead, November 1st. So it's got that 2000 mile journey to make and we need to let it get on the road. And so (laughs) we got in the car and we started driving. Well, North of us is Christmas tree country, and they use a lot of herbicides on Christmas mm, trees. Right. And so there weren't, it, I couldn't see anything blooming. We rode for miles, and I'm looking at my monarch in my jar, flapping its wings, knowing it wants to head to Mexico. But I was feeling so responsible for this little critter. Finally, finally, we saw a middle school where they had planted a pollinator garden. We pulled off. I released the monarch in the pollinator garden and it just hung out on the plants. My husband wanted to get home and I said, no, let's make sure it's going to be okay. So it just hung out on the plants and hung out on the plants. It didn't seem to be taking off for Mexico. And we waited, we waited, we waited. Finally, this little monarch that weighs the weight of a raisin. Uh Uh-huh started flying and we saw it take off. We got in the car, I wept. Wow. Absolutely wept. I felt so responsible for this creature who had to make that 2000 mile journey and its species was relying on it and its sisters and brothers to keep the species alive because it's a candidate right now for being listed on the endangered species list. I know. And that's what happens. And I hear that story over and over again from other people that once they really start observing these pollinators, butterflies, bees, beetles, flies, wasps, hummingbirds, moths, and they watch them interact with the flowers, they really do get hooked and they feel responsible and they want to help. Nice. And that's a great reason to start an organization called B-City USA. (laughs) And that's been the response. People want to help. They really do want to help. Yeah. And how can homeowners and farmers support pollinators? 
Oh boy, they're in such a great position to help because while native plants are important because pollinators plants co-evolved over millions of years and now nearly 90% of wild plants rely on a pollinator to reproduce. So all of the other animal kingdom, terrestrial animal kingdom is relying on those pollinators to keep the plants alive that they need for food, for habitat, for nesting, you name it. So if you have just a little pot on your terrace, you can plant something that flowers and you will see pollinators come and nectar on it or take pollen from it or both. Or if it's a host plant for a moth or a butterfly, you might even see them lay an egg on it and then see their caterpillar eating the leaves of that plant. So even the tiniest spaces can contribute to the food and nesting habitat that they need because they're around us all year long. They're in the ground, they're in dry stems in wintertime, they're in dead branches, dead tree branches. They're in Le leaves. Oh, thank you for bringing up the leaves. Yes, that leaf litter is filled with pollinators at some stage of their life cycle. And people don't realize that. And so we're chopping up our leaf litter, we're bagging it up, we're taking it off someplace else. And it is just crucial overwintering habitat for all kinds of creatures, but especially moths and butterflies. 94% of moths overwinter in leaf litter. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so it makes sense when you think that they're up in the treetops, seeing those leaves in the treetops, at whatever host plant they're in. And so when it comes fall and the leaves start to fall, they come down with the leaves. And so they just stop their development wherever they are. If they're an egg, they stop there. If they're a larva, they stop there. If they're a pupa, they stop there. A few of them overwinter as adults, but most of them are overwintering before they become adults. And then they come out the next year when it's time. Wow, I didn't know that. So don't bag your leaf litter and throw it away, wherever away is. Rake it if you have to rake it. I'm sitting here looking out at my backyard and there's leaves all over the place. I just leave it. But if you have to rake it and put it in basins, put it someplace where it can support those pollinators, number one. And leaf mold compost is one of the best things for your garden. Exactly. So. Yeah, the, the nature's pretty smart. Those trees that drop those leaves then get the nutrients in the soil that are derived from that. Once the insects go to work that break down materials that naturally compost organic matter, then the trees take that back up. And even if you're not a pollinator conservationist, it's a good idea for your trees. And this is a really important question for people to ponder. And and that is, why should we be concerned about pollinators? And they're just little bugs. <laughs> yeah, and we've declared war on bugs ever since about World War II when we came up with all these chemicals for war purposes. And then later we had those chemicals left over after the war ended and the companies who manufactured them had to find a use for them. So we came up with a notion of pesticides. And today in the United States, on average per capita, each American uses about three and a half pounds of pesticides a year. And when we talk about pesticides, we're talking about pesticides, fungicides, and insecticides when we're in a pollinator conversation. What really 
drives me a little bit nutty is when people automatically go to, I've got this bug in my garden, how do I kill it? When in reality, only what, about three or 4% of the bugs are bad bugs? That's so true. And our message in the pollinator conservation community is if you diversify, and so I think you ask about gardeners and farmers, if you diversify, even if you're raising just a few crops, if you incorporate a diversity of plants nearby that actually attract pollinators, you're gonna get some aphids, you're gonna get some unwanted critters that might eat your cabbage or whatever, but you're also gonna get their predators. And unlike the expression, it's a dog eat dog world, which is not true, dogs don't eat dogs. What (laughs) is true is that bugs eat bugs. And if you let nature take its course, more than likely, you're not going to have to worry too much about your pest if you diversify. Now, when you do large-scale plantings of the same plant, then yes, you're attracting the bugs that like to eat that particular plant, and it's overwhelmed and you're out of balance. But if you incorporate other plants among those plants, if you find a way to do that, you're going to attract the predators that will eat those problem bugs in your situation if you're a farmer or a gardener trying to raise a certain kind of plant. We only want to use pesticides as the very, very last resort because we are creating super pests by using so many pesticides. And native plants have a big impact on pollinators and birds and bringing in those bugs and animals that are supposed to grow in our area. Can you define native and tell us why it matters to have native plants in our landscape? We like to define native as a plant that was here in this local area, wherever you are, prior to colonization. And so we have an awful lot of invasives now from all over the world and they've come here and their predator has not come with them. And so there's no natural control for them. And so they've become very aggressive and then they supplant our native plants. But our pollinators were here 100 million years ago, whereas humans only arrived just a few million years ago. And so in that 100 million years ago time period, there's been a lot of coevolution, pollinator and plant. And the only reason that um, plants have colorful, those beautiful flowers that we celebrate so much. The only reason they make gorgeous, colorful flowers that have those fragrant nectars is this pollinator bait. They don't need that nectar. It does nothing for them. The only reason a plant would have nectar is to attract a pollinator. And we just need to honor this coevolution between native plant and native pollinator and incorporate as many natives into our environment as we possibly can. And it takes some research to find out what truly is native. We throw that term around very loosely. So if you go to a garden shop or a big box store, they might label plants that are native. If if you're in Ohio, they might be native to California or like me and you in North Carolina, my husband went out and he knows better the other day and he bought a plant and it was labeled native and it was from a a garden center that he trusted. And I said, I don't think so. And I looked it up and it was native to Oklahoma, 
but it's not native to Western North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so that's why our BCD USA affiliates take the time to come up with their plant lists that are locally native to their particular area. And it does take some research and you need the help of some botanists to figure all that out. But once you do, you have a solid list that you can go back to and you can refer people to. So I'm a city or a campus that wants to get involved and I reach out to B City USA and I sign up. What are the next steps? How does the process unfold? Once your city adopts the resolution, the city council adopts the resolution, then you just start doing the work. You start doing awareness activities and creating habitat on public and private lands. And you start working on your integrated pest management plan. So it affects some of the policies in your city. Um, And you have to have a standing committee and a department at the city that sponsors that committee. And so once you have that standing committee of people and you get into your routine, you're going to do amazing things year in and year out. And in your annual report, you're going to record that. So you don't forget that amazing thing you did three years ago. It can be showing movies. It can be doing a scavenger hunt at a farmer's market to have the kids find the foods that needed the help of a pollinator. No matter what it is, you're making friends for pollinators. And it's so important because 75% of our crops rely on those pollinators. Wow. And three key things to think about when you want to talk about pollinator conservation? The three key things are as many native plants in the environment, and we're talking about wildflowers, grasses, shrubs, and trees. People don't realize that our trees are meadows in the sky for pollinators. A lot right. going on up there that we can't see. And so we focus on this notion of pollinator meadows, but really the trees are as important, if not more important. And what the latest research is showing is that even when pollinated trees, are supplying pollen to early spring bees. So we know that the trees are important as host plants for moths and butterflies, but we hadn't appreciated how important the wind pollinated trees are for the bees, because we have 20,000 species of bees in the world, 3,600 species in the United States alone. Wow. Uh, And almost all of those are solitary bees. They're not like the honeybees and the bumblebees. And so what the ones that come out in early spring, because we have bees that are coming out at different times of the year to pollinate whatever's blooming at that time of the year. So you wanna have something there for them to eat and to feed their young. Bees rely completely on pollen for feeding their young. They create a nest and they provision it with a pollen ball with some nectar thrown in. And that's what the egg they lay on that pollen ball is going to hatch and a larva will come out. And then they'll feed on that pollen until they turn into a pupa. Then they'll pupate and they'll become an adult bee. And in the spring, if there are no trees blooming, even if it doesn't look like a bloom to us, because it's not a pretty flower, it's very Mm -hmm. modest. You think like a maple, a blooming maple, for example, very crucial to spring bees trying to gather pollen for their offspring, then you start to appreciate just how important those wind pollinated trees are, even pine, pine trees. Bees will collect pollen from pine trees. The protein content of the pollen in wind pollinated trees, I think by and large, 
is not as strong as an animal pollinated flower. There is that, you have to look at the protein content, but it's still important and it's abundant. My goodness, we all, anybody who's allergic to pollen knows how abundant <laughs> right? is with the oak trees and the maple trees and all those other wind pollinated trees. All right, so of the three things to think about for pollinator conservation, natives was the number one. What was number two? Having nesting sites, and we talked about leaving the leaves before. Yep. That's more of an overwintering issue, but leaving some dead tree material, whether it's the trunk of the tree that died, because the beetles will make little burrows in those trees, little tunnels, and then the mason bees and leaf cutter bees will come behind them and they'll nest oh, in there. Oh, nice. Um, and also dead stems, pithy stems. Many bees nest in a pithy stem like a joe pie weed. And then once those plants have died back in the fall over the winter, they'll overwinter in those stems as well in some mm. of their life cycle. That's the other thing. And then not using pesticides is the third thing. Yeah, not using any chemicals at all. That would be ideal. Yeah, They're in the ground and those chemicals are seeping into the ground. And, and there's tons of research about the damage it does to all kinds of insects, including pollinators. Yeah. And it just throws the whole system off balance. My house in Phoenix, where I lived for 32 years, was organic for 32 years. And the biodiversity on a city lot in Phoenix, Arizona was mind-blowing. The things that were there, I had a bee expert. And when somebody says bee, you think honeybees, right? I had a bee expert come to the house one day from one of the local colleges. And she was just fascinated by all the little flying things. And she knew what this little bee was. And she knew that this bee was a male be and they were just teeny they'd sit on the head of a pin and she knew the difference between the males and the females and it was an amazing experience to hang out with her for a couple of hours in my yard and learn that because the, that's the, so cool yeah the diversity is just as mind-blowing and the, you'll find the greatest diversity of bees surprisingly in more desert arid areas really and the smallest bee in the world is perdita minima out in the southwest it's a mining bee it makes its nest in the ground mm -hmm. and it's only a 16th of an inch long <laughs> wow that's amazing i want to shift a little bit on you and let's talk about your ideal pollinator garden can you paint us a metal picture i talked about the scaffolding before having the grasses the wildflowers the shrubs and the trees that's a ideal that you have all those different levels because their needs are so great throughout the year, not just during bloom time, but maybe some bare ground or sparse grass. If you have grass in your yard, areas where there's gaps, because like I said, 70% of bees nest in the ground. But the biggest key is the diversity of native plants. And it's okay to have non-natives. My gosh, I love azinea as much as anybody else. And the butterflies sure love them. Right. But according to Doug Tallamy of Bringing Nature Home, it's estimated that in most American landscapes in urban areas, you'll see that about 75% of the plants at least are non-native. I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, and our area is considered one of the most biologically diverse areas in the world for plant life in the temperate world. Right. 
So the notion that our yards are almost filled with non-natives when we have such a diversity of plants here to choose among is pretty ironic. But what do we do? We buy what the nurseries supply. Yep. So we encourage our bee cities to, to work with local growers and to really promote those local growers and to vet them on their pesticide use, try to find those that are using pesticides as frugally as possible, if at all, and then promote them, encourage people to buy their plants from those growers who are local and who are trying to grow straight species, straight native species. And so that's my ideal pollinator garden where you really mix it up with lots and lots of diversity. And our own garden is a great example. My husband loves Asian plants just loves Asian plants. And so I, I tell him it's his fault that he created this monster <laughs> <laughs> because he was planting, of course, Japanese maples and Korean this, that, and the other, and Chinese evergreens. And so we had a lot of Asian plants in our yard, mm -hmm. very popular. And then as I started to get educated about the need for pollinator conservation and what what would most help pollinators? I said, honey, our yard is a desert for pollinators. It's ironic that the diversity, the greatest diversity of bees is in the desert, would I use that term? But most of us think of a desert where there's not a lot of life. Right. <laughs> um, and so at first he bristled and he did not like it one bit that I was challenging how he was landscaping. We just have a third of the, an acre here in downtown Asheville in a historic neighborhood. And finally he got on board. And so every time something died, he replaced it with a native. He started expanding our flower beds and the lawn got smaller and smaller. Nice. And natural areas and flower beds just grew and grew. And now he's so proud of his garden. He loves it. He grabs people who are passing by and says, hey, you <laughs> <in> my garden. <laughs> and we've been on numerous garden tours that I use as opportunities to educate the public about pollinator gardening. So he's my biggest convert. Nice. Congratulations. <laughs> so I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. When I started B-City USA, I was working full time and trying to keep B-City going at night and on the weekends outside of my daytime work hours. And so I was working about 60 hours a week, um, probably on B-City USA, and then my 40 hour a week paid job. <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we do. And I'll never forget that a woman from Alaska called me. And I was getting calls all the time, emails and calls. And she said, we're interested in applying for BCDUSA certification. And I just, I chuckled and I, you have pollinators in Alaska? Uh. She was devastated. She oh. could not believe that BCDUSA didn't know that there were pollinators in Alaska. So earlier in our conversation, I think we mentioned that we're in 45 states now with BCDUSA. USA. Yep. Alaska's not one of them. Hmm. I still continue to hope that it will happen, that we'll get affiliates certified in Alaska. But because of my just 
offhanded comment, I so offended her that we lost that one. Yeah. And, and who knows how many times she's told that story about that conversation. And so I've learned to take people very seriously. If they have the wherewithal to call me or email me seeking information about pollinators, I always take them very seriously. I'm never flippant. If I get to know them and we understand each other, that's a different matter. But you never realize how an an offhanded comment can impact somebody. Yeah, exactly. That that was a huge lesson and it was a good one. Yeah, Uh, those are the ones we breathe through. Yeah. And learn from. What do you consider your biggest success? Learning to trust people and to be silly, to bring (laughs) fun to the party. We really encourage all of our B-cities to... um, celebrate pollinators and to celebrate the people, the advocates who are helping them. Because so often people in environmental conservation are so serious about their cause that they take the fun out of it. Yeah. And so we really try to get people to have fun and welcome anybody who has anything to offer to get involved, to use whatever they can bring to the table And so that's how I got B-City started and kept it going all those years and was able to hand it off to the Xerces Society in 2018 when it got bigger than I could handle. I finally quit my day job in 2015. My husband stepped in and said, I think we're okay if you quit your day job because a person does have to sleep occasionally. And we concentrated on BCUSA after 2015. And then in 2018, I asked the Xerces Society if they were interested in taking over the program. And I'm so grateful that they were excited and delighted to assume that role and have done a fantastic job ever since they took over. And they hired me to run it for the the last year and a half between June of 2018 and the end of 2019, because I told them my goal was to retire. Mm -hmm. And they gave me three months with my successor to train her to take over when I left at the end of 2019. So when you ask what my biggest success is, I'd say to trust people. Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, Mm -hmm. committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. That has been proven over. a thousand times over in my experience. Yep. And that quote always tears me up. That's me like, too. Yeah. Go out and do something epic and it can be big epic or small epic. It's your epic. Wow. And the, the idea that you created this organization, grew it to the size that it was, and then were able to hand it off to another organization and it's still thriving. I'm an entrepreneur. I've been self-employed since I was 15 years old. If you do the math, that was 45 years ago. And that is a true dream for a lot of entrepreneurs, being able to create something. Now this is a nonprofit, but you still created it under the guise of entrepreneurship and handing it off and having it thrive is magic. I'd seen too many nonprofits die when their founder retired. I witnessed three in Asheville that did that. And I was so determined that was not going to happen. And so I always cultivated relationships with pollinator conservation organizations. And the Xerces Society was at the top of my list. They have the largest pollinator conservation program in the world. 
Wow. Oh, well, it's a perfect it. place for it. I still can't believe it. I can't. <laughs> That's so cool. I'm just, I'm gushing with joy. It's just, wow, magic. And what drives you? I'm telling you, the pollinators drive. I'll tell you one story as an example. The Atala butterfly in Southern Florida was thought to be extinct. And there were people lobbying the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back in the 70s to declare it extinct. Nobody had seen one for years. And then as luck would have it, the landscaping industry noticed that the Kunti plant, what, that they could propagate it, and that it looked really pretty in cultivated landscapes, mm -hmm. landscapes. And so they started putting Kunti plants all over the place in Southern Florida. It's a really pretty plant. Guess what? The Atala butterfly reappeared. Wow. Suddenly people started seeing the Atala butterfly. It was quite extinct and all it needed was its larval host plant. And so by, there accident, you go. by accident, the landscaping industry brought back a species. <laughs> Love that. So if we act with intention, what can we do? It's amazing what we can do if that happened by accident. Yeah. That's a great question for our listeners. If you act with intention, what can you do? I love that. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I've got to say the Xerxes Society's Attracting Native Pollinators. They published it in 2011, and it is just the Bible of pollinator conservation. I have a whole library of books, and I love them all. But when I have a question and I'm trying to figure out how to answer it, nine times out of 10, I just go back to attracting native pollinators and the answer was there all along. I've read <laughs> it cover to cover, I've, it's marked up. I've got little sticky notes all through it. It's so valuable. Nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I thought about that question before, uh, we started this interview and I have so much I want to say, but I guess it's just don't try to do everything overnight. If you do want to be a pollinator advocate or a pollinator conservationist, just take your time and do a little bit, do a little bit more, do a little bit more. I've encountered so many people who have said, oh my gosh, I need to just rip out all of my landscaping and start over. I always say, no, don't do that. Just every time there's a hole in the landscape, put a native plant in it. Just keep adding and adding, shrinking your lawn because the lawn's pretty useless for pollinators. Just increasing <laughs> right. the natural areas or if you're a kitchen gardener, those kitchen garden plants, those European herbs, Oh my gosh, the pollinators love that stuff. So whatever you're doing, if you avoid invasive plants, non-native plants that are aggressive, and you avoid pesticides, and you incorporate more native plants, you are going to be helping the pollinators and helping to connect habitats so that if your neighbor's doing a little bit, and this other neighbor's doing a little bit, even though the pollinators generally, unlike the monarch butterfly, 
don't go very far from where they emerged as adults. Most of them never go more than a few hundred yards from where they emerged as adults. Wow. If your neighbor's doing a little bit, it starts to add up. All that comes together. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Phyllis. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my gosh. And I have to say, you and I met at the farmer's market uh, at UNC Asheville a couple of months ago, and I walked into your booth and it was like, oh, wow, I've got to share this story. And I inquired and you were standing there. And so thank you for that. Uh, It was a nice meeting you then and nice meeting you today. Oh, it's been so much fun. And let me say that UNC Asheville is also a B campus. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) And Asheville was the first B city. We're really proud of that. Wow. Nice. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, we've made arrangements that you can send an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. And Janice will forward that email to you, Phyllis. And you guys have a website. So tell us about your website. Just go to bcityusa.org and you'll find everything you want to know about applying to be a B-City. There's tons of resources, tons of webinars. And if you go to xerces.org, X-E-R-C-E-S, it was the first butterfly in North America known to have gone extinct due to human causes. That's how they adopted the, the organization's name. It's overwhelming, the resources they have. But boy, what a committed science-based organization. And wow. they love the work that's happening in cities. That's why I wanted to be on the Urban Farm podcast. Nice, nice. When I have to tell you what you've done, what I've learned today has changed how we think about pollinators, it brings me to tears. I just so appreciate it. And this is why I like to do this podcast is I like to get people thinking and learning. And you've just done an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. It's been a delight. Thank you for all you do. You bet. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash BCityUSA. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.